looked at the Beatitudes last week. Um, and the Beatitudes are that beginning part that almost sounds like it's out of Proverbs, that Jesus leads into the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually part of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's kind of like the, the leading in a lot of ways. And we broke down the importance of the Beatitudes because those and also the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's possible just to like read over it and like, oh, okay, this sounds like good advice. Be nice to people and you'll be blessed. I mean, I've heard people sum it all up that quickly. It's like, oh yeah, I've heard the Sermon on the Mount. Be nice to people. Um, there's more to it than that. And as we dig a little bit deeper, what we find is that with each one of those eight Beatitudes or eight promises from the Lord, each one is designed to bring us to the end of ourselves. That to be poor in spirit is the idea of recognizing our absolute spiritual poverty. That we have nothing to offer the Lord. We have nothing to give. No work, no sacrifice would ever be enough to make us worthy to be loved by Him. Right? And so... But that place of recognizing it is where the relationship really begins. It's where we understand that we have nothing that should drive us to the need of a Savior. That we need to be saved. We need to have somebody pay our price and come for us. And, and all of them go through that same thing. The, the idea of to those who mourn or those who mourn over sin and the damage of sin in their lives. And the damage of sin in our world. Um, and again, it's in that place of coming to the end of ourselves that Jesus wants to meet us. That's where the relationship begins. Um, and we also talked about that, that word blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The word blessed there is important because it doesn't just mean good things are going to happen. It doesn't just mean, hey, you, things will go your way. It the best way to describe it in our ter modern terminology is that it is a joy that is anchored to God himself. Unchanging, forever and eternal joy in him. That's blessed. It isn't circumstances. It isn't when things go my way. It isn't when I get what I want. It's beyond all of that and it's deeper. It's blessed. Right? So as Jesus is making these promises, they've got some very, very important deep roots that lay the foundation for the whole Sermon on the Mount and really, in a lot of ways, lay the whole foundation for Jesus' ministry. I believe this is why Matthew starts here. Right? There were other events that took place, and you can read about those in the other Gospels, uh, that Matthew skips over the wedding in Canaan and the first miracle, and he skips over other events, and we go, well, these are important things. I think Matthew starts here because... He recognizes that this is where Jesus lays down what he's all about, what he's come for, what he likes, what he doesn't like, what it means to follow him. And there's a real double-edged sword to the, Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, because on one side of it, he's saying, look, this is what you should do. But if you listen to all of it, you realize we can't deal with that. We can't do all of that perfectly. We desire to, but it's just not in us to complete it, right? It's the same as the Ten Commandments. You can read the Ten Commandments and go, wow, that's good advice. Don't kill, don't steal, sure, right on. When we get to things like don't bear false witness, uh, well, nine out of ten ain't bad, seven out of ten ain't bad, you know, and, but the idea is perfection. And again, it should drive us to him. 
So we'll talk more about that as we go on. So today, we're actually going to uh, continue on, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start in verse 13, and we'll get through verse 30? Is that where we're going? Yeah, verse 30. Yes. So that's as far as we're going to go. Once again, I thought that I'd get the whole thing. No. There's just too much to it. There's so many good things. I did not want to uh, speed through any of it. So let's pray, and we'll take off at verse 13. Lord Jesus, again, we just thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for a country that we can meet in your name, and, and Lord, that we can study your word. Thank you for uh, this place and this time. And again, we give it to you, and we pray, Holy Spirit, you'd lead us, you would teach us, that you would plant your word in the good soil of our hearts, that we would be changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, verse 13 of chapter 5 of Matthew. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they, do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came... Actually, let's start right there. I'm going too far. Stop at verse 16. Um, as we looked at the Beatitudes, like I kind of pointed to at the beginning, it gives us a lot of idea of what Jesus was about. And in some ways, it's him kind of telling the people, these are the things that are important. This is what's going to cause you to be blessed. But now it changes direction in his teaching. He changes direction in his teaching a little bit because he changes it from, well, this is my purpose and this is what I'm revealing to you. Um, that's still happening, but it's also, this is my purpose for you. So not only is he saying, hey, this is what life's about. This is who's blessed and who's not. He's saying, this is what I have in store for you. This is who you are. And he said, puts it in the picture of you are salt and light. Um, I think both of these in our culture, in our society, probably worldwide for the most part, um, Salt and light are really taken for granted. That they're seen as pretty common. I mean, any restaurant you go into, you can find salt. Any, anything we order food or we get food, it's already got tons of salt put into it. So we're just like, yeah, salt, no big deal. But in the ancient world and still in some places in the third world, it's highly valuable. Because if you don't have it or if you are restricted in your ability to get it, it causes all kinds of problems. Everything becomes very difficult. And so in Jesus' day, salt was actually used as currency sometimes. That Rome would sometimes pay their centurions and other soldiers with salt uh, because it was so valuable and could be exchanged wherever they went, no matter uh, what the country was. And so uh, as Jesus uses that term, again, we, we kind of go, well, salt's great, you know, so what, big deal. But in the old world, it was highly valued. Uh, Salt has some major purposes, again, that we overlook. Salt preserves food, right? 
if, if you ever get the food and it's like low sodium, you, it's not going to last long in the fridge, whatever it is, right? Salt preserves. And again, in the old days, in the ancient world, there was no refrigeration. So they used salt on fish and on meat and whatever they could to try and use it to preserve. So it's a preservative. It was also used to heal. If you had a wound, if you had an infection, as painful as it was, they would dump salt in it and it would cure the infection. It would, it's a rough way to do it, but it would do it. Um, the other thing is that it was considered to be something that brought joy. That take a bland meal and put some salt on it, and it suddenly becomes amazing, right, when it's done right. And, and so to them in the ancient world, again, the idea of salt had all of these meanings. It had all these things to it. So when Jesus goes, you are salt, you know, I don't know what we use in our, in our term, you are gold. Or you're, you know, the idea that you associate and go, wow, that's, that's something of great value and of great purpose. It serves everyone, whether rich or poor. It has great purpose in everybody's life. Um, and I think it's an amazing description about who we're supposed to be in Jesus Christ. First of all, we just finished the book of Revelation not too long ago. And so when we started that book, we talked a lot about how it's the church that is actually used to preserve the world. That, that God withholds his judgment, withholds his wrath upon the earth while his people are here. But a day's coming when the full number of the Gentiles will be brought in, the church will be raptured, and wrath will fall. So in that way, we preserve. And that's in a very general sense. I, I've seen it in a, in a very uh, personal way to people that I've known. Uh, I remember one husband and wife. The wife just loved the Lord. And she was like in the word. The husband was very anti-Christianity and did not want to have anything to do with it. And one day he and I were having a discussion and he goes, you know, I don't need Jesus. Look at my life. It's blessed. Look, you know, if you want to call it that, look at all the things I've got going. And I said, you ever think it's because of your wife? You're just along for the ride, man. She's blessing your life. The Lord's blessing your house, preserving your life for your wife's sake. And I believe that's true. So not just in the global sense, but in a very personal sense, that the people we're around, you know, they get to be a part of the things that God does in our lives. And we should be glad about that. That's a good thing because they're getting a taste to see that the Lord is good, Right? And then so in that way, as believers, we preserve, or we're used to preserve. Um, we should also be those that are bringing healing. That by our lives, by the love of the Lord in us, by the gospel preached through us, in our actions, in our, in our deeds and everything, we should bring healing where we go. And we live in a, in a world of broken, hurting people. And the thing that they're looking for, though they might look in a thousand different places, in a ton of different directions, and think that they're going to find healing or satisfaction, they don't. But we have the answer they're looking for. We've received personally the healing that they need. And we're continuing to be healed, right? The Lord's still working in us. He didn't just save us and leave us, but He's saved us and is continuing to heal and work in us and work his will in our lives. And, and only we can bring that good news. 
Only we can bring that healing. That's a great honor that's been bestowed on us. And again, sometimes we, we kind of forget that that's part of what we're called to do. I also believe, and this is, this is a per- personal thing of mine that uh, strikes very deep into what I believe our calling is, is that we should be those that bring joy. The Christians should be marked by joy. But if we're honest, for the most part, we are not. That we are seen as those who are sour and overly serious and taking ourselves too seriously. Sourness and seriousness are not fruits of the Spirit. But joy is. And that's important because a lot of time it's the serious and the sour that try and sell it as maturity, right? Oh, well, because I've been walking with the Lord so long, I know that nothing's funny, you know? Because I've been walking with the Lord so long, I know you're all super immature and I'm the mature one. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is. And I believe that's something that we need to to work at in our lives, Again, not putting on something fake, not putting on something that's like a a happy sunshine face even when we're not doing good, but it's an honest joy. Again, our joy isn't rooted in circumstances. Our joy isn't rooted in just when things go our way. When we understand our joy is rooted and anchored in Jesus Christ himself, man, it's unshakable. And so when hard times and difficulties come our way, we let them come and we go, okay. Like I said, in some ways, that was this week. <laughs> it was like death by a thousand paper cuts. No, there were some big things, but nothing huge. Nobody got hurt. There wasn't any, you know, any terrible loss, but there, there was just a lot of little paper cuts. And it was funny because the Lord had to keep bringing Candy and I back to like, hey, you know, the Lord's still good. And, and, and we're still doing church on Sunday no matter what. So, you know, again, I kind of feel like that's my own personal mantra, is that we should be marked by joy. So many things that would try and take that away from us. Um, now, Jesus throws out this thing, and, and honestly, it's, it's kind of terrifying. And, and we see this throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where he gives this great thing that's it's exciting. We're like, yes, that's awesome. And then right behind it is this like, kind of terrifying thing. That he, that he throws out. And uh, what if salt loses its saltiness? And, and we go, well, what does that mean, right? Well, in the ancient world, again, salt was a little bit different because it was usually just salt water that had been evaporated. It had a bunch of uh, impurities and things in it. And so it actually could lose its saltiness. That it, if it got too much moisture to it or other events took place, basically only the impurities would be left behind. And it would still kind of look like salt, but it did not work like salt at all. And so he throws this out, and, and the idea is, if salt loses its purpose, it suddenly doesn't preserve anymore, it doesn't heal, it doesn't bring joy, then it is no longer highly valued. And he puts that towards us being the salt of the world, that he has made us to be the salt. Now, this isn't saying, well, if you lose your salvation, I've heard people use that, well, see, you were salt, now you're not, you're worthless, you're thrown out. The the whole idea is just simply, if you lose your purpose, what good are you? 
if you get distracted with all the things of the world, if you get distracted with all the things that everybody else in the world is distracted with, if you get distracted with sin, what good are you? You have lost the very thing you were designed to do. Right? And that's the idea, is that salt is salt all the way through. And a believer should be a believer all the way through. We find ourselves again. doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. What it means is that we are wandering in the wilderness without purpose. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. Now, this was not an unusual saying, but it was rarely used. In other words, a lot of people had heard it, but there was very rare times that it would be used. Usually, it would only be used by rabbis when they referred to, like, the elite rabbis. And they would call them a lamp to the world or a light to the world. And if they were really good, they would be a lamp to the universe, right? But it was something that was reserved for the very tippity-top of all the teachers, right? Nicodemus would be one that somebody would say, well, that guy's a lamp to the world, right? But now Jesus takes that reserved saying and goes, you know what? Because you are my disciples, you are the light of the world. And it, was a, it would have been one of those things everyone would have, who's he talking to, right? These are the common, not only the 12, but the common people that have gathered to Jesus there at the mountain. And, and he re- gives them this great compliment that would never have been bestowed on them by any of the religious leaders for sure. Um, and we see that there is like this logical progression, right? So John records twice Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Because he's the light of the world, we are his disciples that now bear his light. And it makes us the light of the world, right? I like the fact that Jesus didn't say, you can become the light of the world or you might be the salt, or you can earn that title of being the salt. And I've even heard people kind of teach it like that. Well, you're, kind, you're becoming, you could be the light of the world, you could be the salt. Jesus doesn't say that. He just says you are. You are whether you think you are or not. You are if you want to be or not. If you're a believer, you are the salt and the light of the world, period. So that isn't the question is, are we? The question is, what do we do as the salt and light, right? As the salt, do we get distracted? Do we lose our saltiness? Do we start getting drawn into the world? As the light, do we cover it up, hide it under a basket? And I'd like to say that that, that doesn't happen. But I know for myself personally, and I think for all of us, There are definitely times where we're just like, I'm just going to be quiet, right? We've got the opportunity, maybe in a group, and they're all talking about whatever they're talking about, worldly things, and we have the opportunity to go, you know, Jesus said, (laughs) and we don't, right? Now, again, there's always that balance, and I think it's important that we are those who are being led by the Spirit, because every opportunity doesn't come up so that I can shoot my mouth off and offend or push people away, right? We need to be listening to the Holy Spirit, but when he says speak, speak. And again, I know for myself, there have been too many times where he has said speak, and I'm like, "Mm, I don't think so, right? That's just hiding the light under the basket. 
And that's something we all have to be careful about. But again, it does not change that we are still the light of the world. Like a city set on a hill. And this isn't a change of topics, because it could sound like he's talking about light, and then he's talking about city, and now he's talking about light again. The idea is that a city on a hill at night. That if you were on a journey, on a path, heading towards a town, and it got dark, you were out of luck. But if that city was on a hill, you could see it from miles away because of the lights that are in it. It can't be hidden. And Jesus says the same thing about us. Again, even if you want to be hidden, you won't be. You can try, but then you just become that awkward person that everyone's like, what's their problem? <laughs> it, it doesn't work to try and hide the light. Even putting it under a basket, it's going to set the, fi- the basket on fire, right? It's a candle or it's a lamp. It's, it's, it's not going to work to hide it. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And in fact, it's meant to be a guide to weary travelers. That's kind of how that whole picture is there. Weary travelers who are lost in the dark would look to that city on a hill and go, I can find my way there. And that's who we are. That, that there's a lot of other people that are like, no, I'm not interested. But there are the weary travelers that are going to see the light that we bear of Jesus Christ and go, I can get there. And that's our job, to reach out and to encourage, you know, not to put it under a basket, but instead to put it on a lampstand. And again, the picture is beautiful because it's so practical, right? That if you put a light on the floor, it's hard to see in the room, but you put it up high and you can see everything in the room. And so our job or part of our calling is that we would take the light of Jesus Christ and hold it as high as we can, that it would give light to all men, right? That's a great picture. And then Jesus says, And the idea is in this way or in that same way. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He makes us salt and light. He empowers us to be salt and light. And then the other great thing about it is here's how you know when you're doing it right. You disappear and they see your Father in heaven. I mean, to me, that's... In, in our years of ministry, we've gotten to see a lot of different worship teams and pastors and leaders and conferences, and, and great, you know, they're awesome. But to me, there are those that stand out in my mind. And it's never, like with a worship team, it's never the huge band. It's never the big ensemble. They sound great, and that's great music. But honestly, it's the people that just seem to disappear. And there can be 10 of them on stage, and they all disappear, and everybody's focused on the Lord, right? I think we're so blessed in this church to have the worship teams that we do because they, they do it. They're, they're not trying to bring attention to themselves. Everything's going to the Lord. And pastors are the same way. The, the, the goal of any good teacher is that they just disappear, and, and everyone looks to the Lord. Now, that's how it should be in every aspect of our, of our lives, right? That the good works we do... And we should be doing good works, right? It's not just good words. It's not just things we say. It's doing it. But the point is, is to raise the light of Jesus high. And the people would go, not only do I see what you're doing, I understand why you're doing it. It's for the God that you believe in, that you serve, right? 
All right. Verse 17. It says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will be by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, there's a section where at first people are like, wow, this sounds great. And then Jesus ends with, if your righteousness does not exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. And everyone went, what? Who can exceed those guys? Who can go beyond what the religious leaders are doing? Again, that's, that's really the point of the Sermon on the Mount. It's to give great hope, but it's also to make us realize you can't keep all of it. You need to be saved. And Jesus says, uh, is clarifying a lot of things here. He's correcting some false teaching, some wrong teaching that some of it has been around for generations in Israel, and he's beginning to correct it. So, he says, do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Um, and this is where Jesus really kind of starts a, a different section of his teaching. It sounds like he's almost jumping from topic to topic. Like he's hitting all these hot topics. Like he's going to talk about divorce and he's going to talk about murder and he's going to talk about all these things. But it's all under one category of the law. And he's referring to the law and the prophets as what we would call the Old Testament, saying, look, I didn't come to destroy it. Now, the thought of the Messiah wasn't that he would come and destroy necessarily the scriptures or destroy the things of the past, but the idea was that he was going to come in this way that really wasn't supported by scripture, that he was going to be this warrior Messiah that would overthrow Rome, that it would raise up an army. And, and this is part of what's being corrected here. Jesus isn't going to do something contrary. And he's saying a couple things that are important. This is a simple saying, but it, it's covering some important things. That first of all, Jesus will never and did never break the law of the Old Testament. But it also means the law that's given, all of it, all of the law, all of the prophets were pointing to him. And he is going to be the one to fulfill everything that they pointed to right it's important to get that because again uh i think sometimes we misunderstand what the law's purpose was the law gets a bad rap right and we we, we talk about you know we think about the pharisees and the legalism and the scribes and all the stuff that they added to the law um but we need to understand the law given by god is perfect flawless. The only thing wrong when it comes to the law is us. And that's the issue. It's not that God went, well, let's try this Ten Commandments and law thing first. And that didn't work out. So he's like, okay, plan B, uh, grace, right? There wasn't this like switch of plans. This has always been the plan. And that 
the law was given that we might understand our need for grace. Because if we didn't have it, we, we, we wouldn't understand the damage that had been done. Really, the law to us is like a giant mirror that's held up to our soul, and we go, that's a mess. That's an absolute mess. And it causes us to compare ourselves to the perfection of God himself. See, God never breaks his law. He's always kept his law. But we only keep it sometimes, which makes us lawbreakers, which makes us sinners in need of a Savior. But the law has a purpose. I love what uh, Paul said in Galatians chapter 3. He says, Therefore the law was our tutor, or schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. Right? So the law showed us what was needed. The law told us, look, you can't keep this. You're a sinner. And we go, then I need a Savior. And that's the law's purpose, is to bring us to Christ. Now, the other thing that Jesus is saying here when he says, I have not come to destroy the law and the prophets, is that he's saying, I'm not going to do something new. And a lot of people at that time, but also people today, cult leaders and cults, what do they always sell? Something new. I got something you never even heard of. This is a thought you've never even considered. We've got the secret truth that nobody else has. And Jesus is saying, I haven't come to, to bring some truth that everything that he's going to do is shown in the Old Testament. Everything is spoken of, pointed to, shadowed in some way, points to what Christ was going to do. And so it's all backed by Scripture. It's amazing. And when he says, I've come to fulfill all those things. But however, it's important, we understand, he was coming to also bring destruction. Not to the law, not to the prophets, but to every man-made rule and to every legalistic thing that the scribes and the Pharisees and the other religious leaders had piled on top of the Scriptures. Again, he never broke any of the commandments, but he did destroy the rules of man. Great, great examples are when he chose to heal people on the Sabbath. And we'll get to that as we get into Matthew. But it's, it's amazing that each time Jesus just had to wait. He could have healed those people the next day. He could have just done it before the Sabbath or after the Sabbath. He chose to do it on the Sabbath. Why? Because it was destroying their rules about the Sabbath. But it wasn't breaking God's commandment to keep it. Right? And so Jesus is going to do that the whole time. And I love it. I love the fact that he is tearing down those rules that, that man creates. Um, and again, there's going to be lots of correction as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of that correction comes very subtly. And it, and it even is happening here when he says in verse 18, For assuredly I say to you. Now, that just on the surface just means truly I'm, tell, I'm telling you something true, right? But there's a lot more to it. And the people would have understood it as they heard Jesus teach. Because it's kind of with the idea of forget everything you've ever heard about this topic. Because what I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. And so it's, it's correcting. He's, he's like preparing them. What I'm about to tell you is a correction of what you've been told. 
Again, it can seem very subtle to us, but uh, man, he spoke with absolute authority that no one else spoke with. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that many believe because he spoke with authority. And this is one of the examples of that. That all the other rabbis would say, oh, well, according to Rabbi so-and-so, and according to this teacher and that teacher, they would never just tell you, say, this is absolutely true. And Jesus is doing that. And again, revealing the truth and at the same time destroying the false teachings that had made their way into Israel and were very prevalent at this time. When it comes to the law, he's also making it clear that it's not just that he's going to keep it in general. That the law itself is perfect in every way. When he talks about every jot and every tittle, those are the small marks in Hebrew writing. For us, it would be like every comma and exclamation point, right? That all, everything's going to remain. Nothing's going to change at all. It's all going to be fulfilled by him. Um, And then he shows the importance of, of desiring to keep the law. And that's important we understand because, again, nobody can keep the law perfectly. It should drive us to Christ. But there's a division that's, that's made here that's very, again, subtle but important. That He says that whoever breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men so. It, it's not that people are going, oh, yeah, I, I want to keep the commandments, but I fail sometimes. It's that they break the commandments and go, it's not a big deal. And you guys could do it too. And it's fine. And let's all vote. This isn't sin anymore. And it's not sin. That's actually the world we live in right now. Where God says, this is right and this is wrong. This will harm your soul. This will do damage to your life. And I'm trying to protect you from it. And the world goes, no, let's all vote. It's not sin. Okay, we're going to do it anyway. Then we will reap the benefits and the damage of it. So... As these things are laid out, Jesus isn't just saying those who break the commandment. Those who break it on purpose, they justify it themselves, and they teach others to justify it as well. They will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. They are bending the word of God to their will. They are changing it, twisting it to say something it was never meant to. On the other side, there are those that keep the law and desire to keep it. Yeah, we fail. Yeah, we fall. Again, it drives us to Jesus Christ. And only through him are we great in the kingdom of heaven anyway. Only by him. Because our righteousness can never exceed that of the scribes, of the Pharisees, you know, if it was up to works. They were the only ones that could keep it, and they'd set it up that way, that only they could keep it as well as they did, right? Again, Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this is going to be a reoccurring theme that the law is right, we are wrong. It's exposing who we are to bring us to Christ. Now, verse 21 says, You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, without cause, shall be in danger of judgment, in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come to the alt- come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on your way with him lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said that to those of old you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right hand causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For what profit is it for you to have one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell? And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For what is it more profit, profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell? Now Jesus like intensifies the things that he's talking about. Um, but it's important, again, there's a progression. The subject is still about the law. When it comes to law, really of any type, but of the scriptures of the Old Testament, everybody tends to do the same thing where we make like a checklist. Well, I've done this, but I haven't done that. This is righteousness, this is unrighteousness. And, and what that causes then is us to live by the letter of it. Well, when do we cross over? How far can I get to the line before it's sin? Can I get right up to it? Can I get one toe over it? How, how far to the line can I get? And in Jesus' day, and really for generations before that, the teaching really was, as long as you don't do it, you're fine. You can do everything except that. Take it right up to the line of murder, but you're fine, as long as you don't murder. You can take it right up to the line of adultery, whatever that might be, but you're fine. And so Jesus is correcting that. And again, it seems very subtle to us, but when he says, but you have heard it said, but I say. In other words, this is what you're being taught, but this is the truth. And and he's making this correction. Again, this would have been huge for the people there. It certainly would have upset the Pharisees and the other teachers going, well, that is what we teach. And Jesus goes, yeah, but it's wrong. And he even says to those of old, in other words, this has been around for generations. Just because something's old doesn't make make it right. It could have been wrong for a very long time. And it's Jesus who brings the correction. I love that. It's really one of the things about the Word of God, right? It isn't that we understand the Word of God like, oh, well, we never quite got that before. But I think as we grow, there are those things that are like, this is what it's always meant. And, and I just didn't see it. I didn't have the eyes to see it. I had my own opinions. I had my own things of, of the old that I still thought were true. But this is what His Word has always said. And so here he is. You've heard it said, but I say. Uh, again, with murder, they believe that, no, well, you shouldn't murder. That's bad. Murder's bad. But it's okay to defame someone's character. It's okay to murder their, their reputation. It's okay to be hateful and cruel as long as you don't murder them. 
And, and he uses a couple of terms, and it's really hard to translate the word raka. Uh, it's more of like the sound that was made that was just kind of understood as an insult. It'd be like if somebody went, right, in your face, you'd be like, that's not very nice. It was kind of like that, but it was considered a curse. And specifically against your lack of intelligence. So if somebody went raka, it was like the idea of like, not only are you stupid, you will be forever, right? Whereas to say you fool was an attack against your character. You're stupid. Again, your intelligence is involved. You're stupid, but it's by choice, right? And so Jesus is drawing this line going, look, you've heard it said it's okay to say those things, to act that way. It's okay to be hateful and and murderous in your heart. And I'm telling you, no, it's not. Because every actual murder began in the heart. Nobody woke up one morning after a great life and went, you know what, I think I'm going to go out and commit murder today. It was something that built over time, that sin took root over time. It was dwelled upon. It festered in the heart and in the mind until it came out in physical form. And Jesus is really saying, this is where it needs to be dealt with first. Right? That we need to deal with it while it's still inside. Uh, one of the words that he uses here is important. That anybody who's angry with his brother without cause. The word angry really kind of gives the context for without cause. I think most people look at it and go, well, okay, as long as I got a cause, I can be angry. <laughs> no. The idea is of anger, or this anger that he's talking about, is an absolute unforgiving hatred. And that is always without cause. And so we need to understand that it's this anger, it's this hatred that if it takes hold of us, it's going to ruin a lot of things in our lives. The first is it's going to ruin our relationship with the Lord. That as he explains this, he says, look, if you're at church, if you're at the altar, and you remember somebody's offended or has something against you, go go fix that. Stop what you're doing. And, And I know we've all been there, right? Where we've got some huge conflict that we're in, And we know that it's our job to say, I'm sorry, but instead I'm going to go to church, right? I'm going to be the spiritual one. And Jesus is like, no, go fix that. And then come back and give your gift then, right? Now, of course, we've also always been in the place, all been in the place of, well, what if the other party is unwilling? What if I want to reconcile? What if I'm happy to... Yeah, Lord, I'll leave my gift here on the altar and I'm going to go reconcile with them and they just simply won't hear it. You've done your part, right? That's what we're being called to. And we find that multiple places in Scripture, you know, Paul talks about is, is, as it comes to you to live at peace with all men, as, as much as you're able to, right, is the idea. And so Jesus isn't saying, you know, make them reconcile. Again, they have to be desiring of reconciliation but it's up to us to do what we can to do our part and and to especially make sure that we do not have that anger that he's talking about beginning to take root in our heart that bitterness that branches out and defiles many right that we are those 
that are dealing with that anger when it is small, forgiving, giving it to the Lord, and asking for forgiveness. The other problem that happens with this anger is that it tends to blind the eyes to, I'm right. I'm right. I just know I'm right. And then I'm going to convince everyone else how right I am. Because that anger is taking hold of us. I must be right. And the way he describes this is beautiful. He's like, you need to reconcile with your adversary on the way. And the idea is on the way to the courthouse. Because you might find out, while you think you're right, you're wrong. And you'll go before the judge, and the judge finds you wrong, and he hands you the officer and takes you to jail. And once you're in jail, guess what? You're wrong. And it's too late. That we need to be those that ask the question, Lord, what's my part in this? How, how do I make things right on my side? Where do I need to ask for forgiveness? How do I reconcile with my adversary? And where am I wrong? I know that there's plenty of areas I'm wrong, but I want to make sure I'm addressing those and I'm being honest about those, right? Now, I just realized I think I went further than I was supposed to. That's all right. It's all right. We'll pick up verse, third, second, verse 26 next week. Um, but, you know, the things that the Lord lays down, again, one side of it is so easy to understand. Dealing with that anger, not looking lustfully, not doing those things, you know, that lead to sin. We understand the concept, but we need him to work it out in us to actually do it, right? That it reveals to us that, yes, we still need a Savior. We need to be those that are not being drawn away by sin. And we are the salt and light to a dying world. And it is sin and temptation that cause us to lose our purpose, that cause us to lose our saltiness, that cause us to put our light under the basket, right? Instead, let us be those that let our light just so shine before men that they would see the love of Jesus Christ in our life, they'd see the work that he's doing, and we'd be honest about it. That we go, look, I've got a long way to go. I make a lot of mistakes. But the Lord is at work in me, and, and you're getting to witness that, right? And sometimes it's ugly, right? <laughs> sometimes the salt in the wound is painful, but it, it's going to bring healing. And people get to see that, and it, it, man, it means the world. Because they see the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray.